This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. This is Beehive Banter just weeks out from the election and even less time till we can vote and then not worry about it at all. Joining me is Brent Edwards, NBR's political editor. So, the first leaders debate. And we learned from Jack Tame that the winner on the night was, drumroll, Jessica Much. Didn't she look uncomfortable? Brent. Anyway, a close call. In my opinion, not that you may agree, but I think Luxon probably won 60-40. Maybe a little bit closer. Maybe maybe 55, you know. Well, you know, I, I've written a column about that debate, but more about the media coverage of it. And, you know, the, the whole winner-loser thing is is really a nonsense. I mean, well, it's not a nonsense because well, everyone says who won. Well, yeah, but it's not... If, if you're a National Party supporter, you'll think Christopher Luxon won. If you're a Labour Party supporter, you'll think... Chris Hipkins No, I don't think that's the case. And then the question will be, will those people who are perhaps floating undecided what they might they think? But all of it, all of that is done though, Grant. That that was a debate of form over substance. And I don't blame the party leaders for that. It's the way these television televised debates are run, quick fire, boom, boom, boom. Well it's called entertainment, Brent. It's clear well it it wasn't that entertaining and it certainly wasn't informative and Largely, frankly, I blame TVNZ for that. Well, we did learn that both Chris and Chris are very similar. And in fact, at some point, you sit there thinking, why don't we just have a grand coalition? Yeah, look, they are similar. And and people go on, oh, there's no difference between Labour and National. I've seen commentators saying this as though... Well, I just said it. That's always been the case. These are two, whatever people think on either side, National and Labour are two centrist parties, one slightly to the right, one slightly to the left. There's a huge intersection of interests between those two parties, so no one should be surprised about that. But where there are differences, they are important differences. Some of them might be subtle, but they are important, and it would have been good to have had a debate that might have explored them in a little bit more depth and got a better kind of reasoning around why would you do that instead of that. And have put both leaders... Well, that's what we're here for. Put both we, we, leaders under a bit more scrutiny around that. <laughs> I mean, and the interesting thing is that TVNZ, despite all of those ad breaks where they could have gone away and checked things, it wasn't until the next day they got Auckland University to do a fact check, which came back with actually a finding that... A lot of the times, Christ- what Christopher Luxon said was just wrong. Yeah, but he clarified now, it after the debate. Well, one or t- one aspect of it, but it's it was never picked up during the debate, and it should have been. It should have been scrutinised. Yeah, but I mean, at the end of the day, does anyone actually believe policy anymore? We get at this late stage. But but that's it. I mean, we'd so all we're interested in is the glibness, the personality, not on policy. But for most people out yep. there, dealing with cost of living issues. Yeah. Um, you know, I suppose thinking about can they get access to a doctor, thinking about their kids' education, maybe worrying about crime, maybe not. But and also the well, longer to frighten me. The longer term implications of climate change, you know, surely we should be talking about well, what are the policies that can respond to these challenges and solve them? Rather than talking about who looked best, who might have been most assured. So getting back who, to my original you know, question, who won? In your opinion? It w- I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm going to do Jack Tame. No, no I, tell me who won. That wasn't my question. I don't pick. Who winners. won? 
Jessica Much Mackay. As, <laughs> right, to the DVNZ poll. The Nats down to 37, Labour down to 27, and the Greens are neck, 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 which basically means if these figures are correct, they're left or gone. Yeah, and, and again, that poll, everyone jumped, well, not everyone, but TVNZ jumped their coverage because of their poll. About, look at the shift, look at the shift. It's all within the, basically, margin of error. I mean, really no different from the previous week's poll, but what we have seen for a number of weeks now, or probably months actually, is a fairly solid trend which certainly shows that the centre-right parties are, are ahead in terms of popular yes, opinion. Yes, although uh, Winston is a sort of centre-right party Ish, with talks that he may uh, be in the coalition of chaos or whichever one it's supposed to be this time. No need for Winston under this new poll. Well, yeah, although it's if, if that poll translated into an election result, it's a very, very, very narrow majority. So all you need... Almost like a hung parliament, yeah, like what I said. All you need is a slight shift in numbers. And I, I'm still picking that, you know, that, that Christopher Luxon on October 15... Sunday morning we'll wake up, and bit, of a, bit of a sore head probably, and think, oh no, I've got to ring Winston. 12% roughly undecided. Do these um, undecided actually bother voting? In which case, who cares how many undecided well, are Well, it, look, it's, it's a bit difficult to tell because what was it? The, the voter turnout at the last election was you know, over, a bit over 80%, so there's about 15 or so percent of eligible voters who don't vote. But, but with that undecided as well, 12%, what the polls don't tell you is how many people they rang and who just told them to bugger off. So for everyone that gets into the poll, there's, I think, one or two others who have refused to answer altogether. So, you know, you've got to take that into some context about around those numbers. All right. I want to change the subject now. What about Wayne Brown, eh? Saying Auckland wants its share of revenue. Is that fair enough? Well, you know, it's the biggest city, um, obviously, and New Zealand depends on Auckland doing well. The question will be about... But who's going to listen to him? Well, that's right. The question will be, post-election, how does that work? I mean, so... Well, it's simple. They ring up and well, say no. Well, he's basically, as I understand it, saying, look, central government should get out of our lives a bit and let Auckland get on and determine what it was, but presumably expecting those central government then to put quite a bit of funding that's right. in. So well, then, well, that's not presuming. That's what he is wanting. Yeah, well, central government then has a lot of interest in how that money is spent. So yeah. that's the problem. But... But he does talk about more of a partnership now, you know, the whole no, idea... I don't think he talked about a partnership. He, he talked about he wants control and he wants the share of the money and everyone else can bugger off. That's what he talked about. Yeah, well, I think that 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 is not realistic. If you're going to get a lot of money out of central government, then central government's going to have some sort of input into how that is spent. Right. Speaking of central things, I want to talk about one poll that did take my interest this week. Wellington Central. It seems that it's basically, I mean, it's been Labour's for quite a while, but it's basically anybody's at the moment, with Labour and the Greens, by the looks of things, splitting the vote with National, yes, possibly able to come straight through the middle. Yeah, you're talking about that News Hub poll, which yeah. I think had Ibrahim Omer on about, what, 30%, the National candidate on 28 yeah. and then the Green candidate on 26 So, yeah, that's a possibility. But I, I wonder if people see that poll, whether those centre-left voters, there might be some agreement at some point to try and say, well, look, go and vote for that candidate to make sure that we... Well, when would they make the agreement? Why would they make an agreement four weeks or three weeks out for an election? Well, it's been Who done... Who would even know about it? it? It's been done plenty of times. Oh, you always just... People, it's been what, done do you plenty... have to walk down, walk down what, Willis Street yelling, oh, oh don't vote for it's me? It's been done plenty of times before where a public signal has been given to one group of voters or another, look, for the candidate, vote for that yeah, one over there. Yeah, but not two or three weeks out from the election. Oh, yeah. Oh, in fact, no, actually, Wellington Central. Wellington Central, that's yes. That's exactly yes, right. Yes, um, 
S. Yes, I was in that movie Richard briefly. Preble. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Mark I, Thomas. I should have known better. Mark Thomas. Who That's got right. Basically stabbed. <laughs> got, well, he didn't stabbed basically in the get stabbed in the back, back did he? By his own party. <laughs> he got stabbed so far on his back, a knife came out the front. All right. Um, <laughs> Labor's dumped the prison population target. Now that's laughable out from the election. Yeah, it hasn't got a lot of coverage, to be honest. Oh, um, I thought it has. Not really. I, I've, I've been trying to actually. I was doing a bit of a run round on. It. I couldn't find a lot of reference, but I mean, clearly, I'm under pressure over um, crime and law and order. So too little, um, too late. Getting too little, too late. Well, if so, you're going to change the, you know, yeah. do the, you know, the targeting thing. Yeah, but interesting going back on crime. If you go back to the debate, there was a bit of debate around crime, and yeah. of course, the issue came up around what the government's been doing for young, you know, youth offenders. That's right. And which Christopher Luxon said they hadn't put in place, which they have put in place, and 80% are not reoffending, as compared with uh, National's policy of boot camps, which when it was used previously, they had an 80% uh, reoffending rate. Um, so Yes, but uh, he's saying it's a different model now. Oh, he's saying it's a different model, but in fact there was an example <laughs> where probably in a debate that could have been explored, been explored in a lot more detail to say, well, how is it going to be different? How is it going to succeed? You've got a model that at the moment appears to be working that the government's put in place. Why wouldn't you stick with that and maybe build on that? I mean, those are the sorts of issues. Because that does not bode but, well with the public. No, it want, doesn't bode well with the public. Who want to see toughness. And when it comes to law and order, yes, we get these simple slogans. That's right. And speaking of um, being able to afford slogans, um, the right, Graham Hart, a bucket load of money to the right, can they actually spend it all? Well, that's what interests me because, you know, there are the limits on election yeah. spending and it's interested me because, you know, through emails you're still getting from both ACT and National saying, more money, more money, please. And you thought, they've got bucket loads of money. I would have thought they would be struggling to know where to spend it. One thing that was interesting to me about Graham Hart, though, is the most recent donation was to da -da -da, New Zealand First. And it's, so it looks well, He's hedging as, his bets. It, it is. He, well... <laughs> Make Mo hedging his bets, but maybe making sure that there is a centre right government because if National and Act cannot make it on their own, then they need New Zealand First to be there. Mm, very interesting stuff. Now, next week, Brent, any policies expected to show how desperate some parties may become? Well, um, no, I, th I think, you know, with the state of the books, no one's going to do anything in terms of, you know, trying to throw a lot of money around because it won't look credible. We've had this week... What, you mean what we've seen up till now yeah. does look credible? Well, yeah, well, that's the argument, although <laughs> what's been said now isn't a massive amount of money being thrown around, but it is it credible from both National, actually, and Labor. And we've, both, we've had New Zealand First, Winston Peters, come out and say that those parties cannot afford their tax cuts, whether it's GST or food or... Yeah, and with, Act with fuel at $3.50 a litre, imagine the yeah, GST that government yeah, will get. And Act has put out its alternative budget where it's cut back on its tax cut plan. It's not as it's not as a radical now, plan as it was. But at the same time, of course, the government is crying <laughs> because we've had GDP figures out this week yeah, yeah. showing we, we weren't in recession. 0 but all the pundits are saying we'll be back in by Christmas. 3.2% growth for the year. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, and basically, what we're saying is more of the same next week. More polls, more speculation, more revelation, more advertising, more shaking hands, more photo ops, and yes, more of us trying to help when you can't make head nor tails of it. Well, 12% of you, apparently, anyway. Thanks for watching. We'll see you then, then. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. New Zealand First has criticised both major parties for sticking to campaign promises that aren't credible given the state of the government's books. 
I'm joined by the party's Northland candidate and former minister, Shane Jones. So your party thinks that both Labour and National should kind of put to one side some of the spending promises around, I mean, tax cuts and the like because of the state of the government's books? Let's just state a fact. When the forecasts were made in 2020, we were meant to be spending $116 billion next year, yet we're going to be up to $140 billion core crown spend. Winston has completely nailed it by pointing out, irrespective of who wins, there's going to have to be a very exhaustive analysis not necessarily a razor gang, but ministers are going to require a committee to almost forensically look at the amount of money that we're currently spending, the value that we're deriving from it, because the spending track, which is really what he's saying, is unsustainable. That's $24 billion more than we were meant to be spending if you go back and look at the 2020 when we were around spending track. Because you were going to announce a, what, $14,000 tax-free threshold, but you've you've put that on hold because of the state of the finances. Is that correct? Yeah, if I quote Winston, that there are a host of um, initiatives that we were bringing forward, many of uh, which have been uh, partially announced or fully announced. But um, look, he's basically saying, given the grave situation of the uh, nation's books, this level of profligacy or hollow promises, it's just not going to fly. He's He was also critical in a speech this week too, though, around obviously issues to do with education and health. So how do you manage to get the books back into a better state? And I think he's talking about holding spending at, what, $133 billion without, if you like, having further impacts on the health and education systems. Well, Treasury itself has pointed out just to stand still, there's going to be an increase in expenditure. But look, we're, we're, we're approaching a situation, either the politicians grab this by the scruff of the neck, by the throat, or if we sit back and continue to acquiesce with the uh, pressures that are on the public purse, we're just not going to be able to pay our way forward. And there are some challenging decisions that are going to have to be made. And Winston is pointing to the fact neither parties are being candid with the public. And um, both him and I are of the view that the tax promises of Luxon are not only unsustainable, but they're undeliverable. And there's something deeply ironic, if not malignant, that the only way they believe they're going to offer a tax break, i.e. the National Party, is by inviting high net worth foreigners, predominantly Chinese, to come in and buy our property. That's an indictment on their vision as to how you get the New Zealand economy functioning again. Well, well let's be realistic. After the election, if if the, and looking at the polls, it seems a very likely prospect that you, um, New Zealand First, would be sitting down with the National Party and on the other side act to talk about a potential government. What line will you take? Well, I gave a speech the other day in Kitty Kitty, and a chap stood up and uh, challenged me as to, well, what would New Zealand first do to exercise influence? 
given that the ACT Party have uh, denounced Winston and said they'll never serve with New Zealand first. Well, let's deal with that level of arrogance first. It is not up to the leader of a minor party to dictate to New Zealanders how, when, and in what character a future parliament will reflect. That's up to voters. And I've got no doubt in my mind that should the opportunity arise, the New Zealand First Party will do what's in the best interests of stable government and delivering for Kiwis. Now, in respect of what line would we take in, re in, in relation to a spending track, we've really got to get back closer to where we were in 2020. And we've got to overcome the anti-growth ideology, which I genuinely believe has taken root in New Zealand. And by growth, I don't mean opening up the borders for unfettered immigration. For once in my life, I agree with Richard Preble. And secondly, neither do I think that it's in the interests of Kiwis and their birthright to own their own home to give all these exemptions for high net worth individuals from overseas to come and buy our property. It's quite bizarre. The National Party resent the exemptions being offered in terms of releasing some pressure over the costs of essential food through GST, but they're willing to create exemptions for high net worth individuals. I think that speaks volumes about their fellow travellers. Where do you think savings could be found in the budget to bring that spend back to that $133 billion? Well, you may recall that Doug Kidd chaired in the past the Razor Gang, and that is the committee that the Bolger and Birch government, and Winston was around in those days. Now, it's a somewhat colourful and portentous term, but I, I genuinely, and I'm not evading the question, I genuinely believe there's going to have to be a virtual line-by-line -line analysis, and I wouldn't trust the chief executive officers. I would actually secure the services of a, of a hard-nosed forensic accountant, someone who's also very au fait with the demands and needs of the front line. Because if we ask the CEOs of the government departments, they will protect their uh, pet projects. And what they've got to do is work with a couple of uh, highly competent um, doubting Thomases to bring all of those savings forward. Now, it, I, I don't want to start picking cherries as to where the easy ones might be. Let's leave it to a, a genuinely robust process. I'd remind everyone, when Longy and them took over, they did turn to a host of private sector uh, identities back in the mid-80s to deal with the fallout of Muldoon's overreach. And although neither of the Chris's are talking about it, it's not an unreasonable model. And Winston, obviously, is keen to ensure that we're realistic, that after the next election, we're going to have to find savings. But more importantly, we're going to have to grow the economy at a pace which is uh, much quicker than what we've recently seen. But Winston Peters has also talked about a mini-budget by Christmas. Is, will it be possible to get the work done that quickly? Well, I think if the budget prior to Christmas sets, sets the tone and the trajectory uh, that the nation's got to follow, it's, uh, more, it's, it's more than capable of being delivered upon. I have a suspicion that within Treasury, and I know Treasury's reputation has been diminished as they've tried to uh, find ballast and content to Jacinda's language about well-being budgets and all such matters as that, but there's no shortage of people within Treasury who know exactly already where savings can be found. And uh, a good look, for example, at some of their pre-food uh, commentary 
gives quite a few clues. Shane Jones, thank you for your time. Kia ora. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Labour leader Chris Hipkins and national leader Christopher Luxon had their first televised leaders debate of the campaign this week. And what was predictable about it was the news media's coverage. To talk about that, I'm joined by NBR's political editor Brent Edwards. So Brent, what did the coverage focus on? Well, the coverage after the debate focused on form over substance. So it looked at how did the leaders perform? You know, were, were they feisty? Were they not? Did they make strong points? Did, you know, did they look confident? That kind of thing. Very, very little discussion or coverage on the actual detail of what they might have talked about. And, and in part, that was largely, you know, the fault, I think, of the format of these television debates. So they want to move, keep them moving fast. They got a next ad break and then they change subjects after an ad break. So it's very, very quick through whatever policy um, subjects they look at. And it doesn't really give those leaders much time to talk about their policies, nor does it give them much time to scrutinise the other leaders' policies or, or for the uh, moderator to do so. So, um, it, you know, it's not a great way, I think, for voters to get a real sense of what difference would there be between the two parties in government. With the quote one reporter, there was no mongrel. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that is probably, you know, kind of typifies a lot of the the, the media um, response. You know, they, they want to fight. They want, as they say, mongrel. Uh, it's a race, a contest. That's how they see it, a sport, a, a blood sport, actually. Um, in fact, we ought to be thankful that here um, in that debate, both Chris Hipkins and Christopher Luxon treated one another with a, a fair degree of respect. They disagreed with one another on a range of subjects, but they treated one another with respect. And, you know, we wouldn't want to move to a kind of highly bitter partisan sort of division that you might say that you look in the, over at the United States or, frankly, even closer to home in Australia. Um, you know, we want our politicians to debate the, the policies, to disagree but to be able to do it in a respectful way, and actually that's something that we should actually applaud rather than most of the media coverage, it's like this huge disappointment because um, people, these two leaders, weren't down one another's throats. What were their strengths and weaknesses then? Well, the strengths and weaknesses, I mean, I, again, I mean, I'm not that interested per se in the strengths and weaknesses in that way of you know their own personalities. It's around the policy issues. There were some interesting discussions on climate change, but cut far too short. On crime, where there was a bit of a debate, of a little bit of discussion around, well, what policies will be most effective? And, you know, question, a very quick question about Christopher Lux about this idea of boot camps, because previously they had not been a great success. And whereas, you know, Chris Hipkins argued the government's formula at the moment of dealing with young youth offenders was quite successful, where 80% were not re-offending. Plenty of time to have tried to de develop, delve into that more, but not. Obviously, should have given a lot more time to a debate around tax and the economy, but again, that was brushed over very quickly. Um, so, so in a way, neither leader got re got really the opportunity to talk in depth about their own party's policies, and as I say, to maybe try and then challenge or question the other side's policies. What's wrong with this horse race style campaigning? Well, you know, the horse race style campaigning, it's all based around 
winning and losing. So again, a lot of the analysis was because Chris Hipkins is behind, as in Labor's trailing in the polls, he lost a debate because in order to win it, he needed to really win it. And that was mean had to you know, have some big kind of win over Christopher Luxon where he was clearly the far better performer. I mean, in, I think in both cases, both leaders would have walked away relatively pretty satisfied with how they performed. Um, but, you know, he didn't get some big king hit, so therefore he's the loser. And, and, and the funny thing is that TVNZ then, through their Vote Compass thing, asks people about who do they think won or lost a debate based on what they saw or what they read or what they heard about the debate. Now, if people had then read some of the coverage around the debate, because what came back was like 42% thought Christopher Luxon had won and only 26% thought um, Chris Hipkins had won. If you'd been reading the coverage, that's, that's the result you would have come back with. And again, it was based on that, who's ahead, this is a sport, um, and no real analysis of the substance of the debate. But, I mean, I guess one of the problems was the debate was never allowed to actually really, really get into the substance. Mm. But there's more to come, though. This isn't the only chance for them to strut their stuff. Yeah, there is. there are more debates to come, but I'm not really expecting anything different, to be honest. I, I will say, from my experience, having... Um, covered these debates over a number of election campaigns. Um, the one that may well be the most interesting will be the um, stuffs debate, the press debate in Christchurch. That's done in a proper kind of town hall type atmosphere, a real crowd, people who can actually talk and that. Uh, it's not done for television. It's more real. And in general, I, you know, I found in those debates, the leaders do actually get to deal with those issues in a more substantive way than they can in these television debates. And what do you take away from that debate in particular? Things about policy? Nothing, really. Uh, I, you, know, there, there, you know, I mean, there were some interesting, as I say, there were some interesting touches on policy, but just as you think, oh, OK, this is interesting, boom, they move on. So you know that so that that's that's the frustration, and that compares with stuff's press debate, which it lets it breathe a little bit more. Lets it breathe a bit more, and yeah. there's a lot more there's a lot more debate about policy issues there, and there's a, a lot less um, focus on you know where, where did you go to school and where the person yeah yeah okay. Brent Edwards, thank you. New Zealand Green Investment Finance has set up a $170 million fund to support solar energy projects, but not all the money is coming from Green Investment Finance. To explain, I'm joined by its Chief Investment Officer, Jason Patrick. So tell me exactly how this is going to work. Yeah, not a fund, actually. Um, What we're doing is uh, we've arranged a long-term loan for um, our first operator in the solar finance program, who's Solar Zero. Uh, a company that we've had the pleasure of working with um, a few times in the past. So what we've done is we've arranged for a long-term loan um, for Solar Zero's operations. In fact, 20-year finance, which is quite rare in this market. And that's what? That's the $170 million. That's right. So it's some of our money, as you mentioned, but most importantly, $90 million of institutional investment capital, which we've uh, brought in from offshore. So how will that be used then by Solar Zero? So this is the sort of long-term finance that operators like Solar Zero um, really need and want in order to uh, pursue their their business models, which of course involves long-term installations, long-term 
uh, plans for um, technologies like uh, of solar installation. So it's the sort of thing that's typically quite difficult for them to uh, get, you know, longer term debt of this nature. So we're really delighted to be able to do it. So what sort of installations? So that's them setting up solar farms, what? Yep. This particular uh, uh, in, um, application is for their residential work. So Solar Zero, as you may know, has been innovative and uh, active in residential solar installations um, for many years now, um, in, for example, setting up no money down uh, solar installations in the residential sector. So what this does is this gives them that long-term finance to be able to continue that work. So you'd expect that then to speed up the conversion that households are doing to solar? That's right. So this should make it a lot easier for SolarZero to continue um, to offer uh, residential solar for homes throughout New Zealand. And I presume that the um, kind of, if you like, comeback for, for you for and for these other investors is that it's, again, on commercial terms and therefore the payback is... Yes, certainly. So everything we do is commercial, as you know. And um, in this particular case, you know, the program that we're setting up in which SolarZero is, is indeed um, the first partner um, is uh, one that we've been able to bring in those institutional investors, of course, who would demand commercial terms as well. That's been the real, the real key for us um, in setting up this program is setting up something that not only works for the operators, but for those institutional investors in order to bring that capital into the market. And uh, sorry, who are the institutional investors and where do they come from? Um, a couple of investors in, in this particular case, one of them is Natixis and one of them is First Centier, so large um, institutional investors who are quite common in uh, offshore markets. And you, you say Solar Zero is the first, so do, you, so do you expect to expand this out to include other firms in the future? Certainly. So um, not only uh, expand to other operators, you know, in addition to Solar Zero, who have been great partners, um, but to other parts of the solar market. So not just residential, but commercial, industrial, solar farms, etc. So we're hoping to bring this model in which we essentially provide um, not only that long-term finance for operators, but again, the structure that institutional investors require for their work to other parts of the market. So, so the 170 million is for Solar Zero. The, if these other right. initiatives would be would be more money that you'd look to raise. That's right. So the 170 million in this case is for this particular application. And clearly, I mean, we've talked about this before. You've you've talked about trying to generate, I guess, dollar for dollar for um, your investment. This is probably slightly more than a dollar to a dollar. Can you? Yeah. Um, but so that I mean, that's if you like the template and, and, and it's almost like a, is it a, in this particular instance is this the kind of trial run then, to then expand and you can go to other institutional investors with other initiatives of the same nature? Yeah well more than trial so this is you know um, a fully fledged loan offering and private placement that we've done with these institutional investors but it's the, the first instance in this program that we're delighted to be able to set up and we'll be rolling out for more operators to bring other offerings to institutional investors to bring capital uh, to this market yes. Do you have, um, I guess, um, sort of targets in place for this particular initiative about that you would expect to be met by, you know, particular time and particular time frames? Not so much. Um, it's mainly the establishment of the program that's so important for us. So being able to demonstrate that we can meet the need, which we identified in this particular case in distributed energy and solar, and that long-term finance need that we've identified that these operators require, but most important uh, as well, being able to package something that we can bring institutional capital into, which is otherwise extremely difficult to be able to uh, access for operators. 
And in terms of the, the one seven, it's over 20 years. So is there a, a sense of how much money will be accessed year by year? I mean, obviously, they're not going to spend the money $170 million today. So, you know. Right, right. So what this is, is this replaces their short-term debt with longer dated debt, right? And I should hasten to add, by the way, that this particular offering is Climate Bonds Initiative certified, which is a first for a financial institution like ourselves in New Zealand. So in that sense, being longer term rather than short term, that presumably then saves them money too in terms of interest costs. That's right. Uh, it works for them from a business point of view and certainly from a uh, tenor point of view. Jason Patrick, thank yeah. you for your time. Thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening. 